Well, uh, how's it going, John? It's good to uh, talk to you. I know it's been a couple of weeks since we last kind of talked, and uh, but hopefully everything finds you well. Great to be back on with you, buddy. And yeah, John, things are good. Um, been spending a lot of time in Montana. The fall hunting seasons are upon us. So I'm gearing up for that and in the woods a lot, and that's always healthy and fresh. And uh, still doing a lot with um, with our Thin Green Line film series and, and different projects around that that we're going to talk about today. So thanks for having yeah, me Yeah, no, I... Uh... It's fascinating. Obviously, getting to know you through Hidden War, like obviously law enforcement, the conservation work you do. Last time we talked, you kind of threw out this casually mentioned this off-road race stuff, the uh, yeah. Baja yeah. 1000. And I, I'm familiar with the term. I've always kind of been enthralled by those kind of Ironman type races, whether it's the the running, the biking, the swimming, or like those really long car races. But the way you said it, I was just like, does he? That seemed like a random kind of thing. Like, why would he kind of? And then, as we talked off record, which is why we're doing this talk today, you're telling me about this, the Baja 1000, the impact it's had on your life, what you do with it. But I'm so glad, like, to have you now to kind of break into kind of how this this idea that Ed Perlman kind of threw together has become something what it is now, and that you are a part of it is so fascinating. Yeah, you know, it was funny because something you said in our last conversation, when we talked about building the Met team, we talked about mental toughness, commitment, working through adversity. That's what really triggered it. And um, I think we started talking about athletics and we're both physical fitness guys. We both, uh, you know, we really tried to stay in good shape through COVID. I love the stuff you're doing through your social media, the other guests you're bringing on. And, and really it's about... We have a saying on Met, you know, through our physical training program, and it's based on the SEAL teams because we have a retired SEAL guru that, that's on the Met team now as a game warden. And he used to say, guys, you got to get your body right for your mind to be right every day. You know, if you don't get in your PT every day or make an adjustment throughout before you get into the, you know, meticulous bureaucratic grind or, you know, whatever we're doing, you're just not going to be as focused as you need to be. And I, I've always taken that to heart. And I started in, uh, I'd done a couple Ironman distance triathlons in, in 06 and 08 and um, what it took to train for those, you know, what it took to survive those. And really it's not so much the event itself of surviving that, that long event, 142 miles between biking, running and swimming, but it's all the time you got to train and stay on a, a committed training schedule for your body to be able to do that. You know, right. that's, that's what it is. It's about that mental fortitude and commitment to time and dedication, not so much just the physical exertion I've found. And that led to, you know, my passion for outdoor racing that honestly, I haven't talked about on podcasts before, brother. It's all been about more of the, the work right. and the conservation, but I've had a love for outdoor desert racing, um, started it, you know, riding dirt bikes and quads way back in college in California my uh, my brother from another mother, my J and J Ironman racing teammate Jeff Moore was my mentor growing up. He's an amazing rider on everything and taught me to ride. And he's actually my racing teammate now and has been, you know, um, ever since we started racing in Baja Mexico right. in two in two thousand six. Um, and then certainly taking it to another level of not just getting on a machine for part of a race where you're going to be in a series of relay riders where maybe three to five of you are going to complete, complete a long endurance race. And as you mentioned, um, I, 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 we, we talked a little bit about watching the documentary film by Dana Brown and Scotty Waugh called dust to glory that came out that chronicles the 2003 Baja 1000, that movie, my brother to completely put us over the edge from 
recreationally riding in Baja, doing all these long rides, to actually taking the commitment to do those dangerous races and, and race the Baja 500. And we've been at it off and on, you know, ever since 2006. And now we've taken it to the level of not doing relay teams, but whatever race we start, usually it's me on a four wheel eight. It's been me on an ATV, an unprotected quad. It's been Jeff on a motorcycle. We do our races solo and try to complete that race by ourselves without any support. And uh, I was very uh, lucky to be the first to successfully solo the Baja 500 in 2013 after coming very close to doing it in 2010, but missing the finish line by 22 minutes and not being an official finisher. So there's a backstory to that as well. And um, I'm glad you wanted to discuss it because it's uh, been been exciting, challenging, dangerous, and one of my biggest bucket list challenges I've ever ever done in my life. Right. It's, it definitely seems like that's like a – I mean, obviously women do it, but for me, and this is like when you read those books at the bookstore where it's like a hundred or a thousand deadly things you should do in your life or what a real man's man type of event. That just seems like something that even just watching it, you see these people just reacting to it. Like it's amazing. So you kind of mentioned that the, well, our last talk, I was, I, I do these talks with different people. And one of the things I've always been fascinated with is this mental kind of capacity to do something at a high level, but not get complacent. And I bet you, I kind of wanted to reach out to like Michael Andretti or Mario Andretti or one of those type of prolific racers because they're able to drive around the set pattern for so long, but stay locked in mentally, not crash, not fall asleep, all this stuff. So if I could kind of relay that to be a security professional, I have to stay, I could walk the same hallway and the same steps and the same route in the venue. Right. I always have to be aware, not, fall asleep or not kind of just all oh, take it for granted. And so I think that's what kind of triggered this kind of your uh, opening up about what you do with this. And so I think one of the first things to kind of start with here is as you obviously you saw the documentary, you have an interest to it, but you, when you start training for this, is your first concern your mental strengthening or the physical aspect? You know, it's, John, it's kind of a combination of both. Um, I would not have been in the mental shape or even the physical shape to successfully survive any Baja race solo unless I had done, you know, um, a couple of triathlons. And, you know, honestly, I wasn't sure what my body would do. I kind of took on doing an Ironman triathlon as a major challenge with a buddy of mine from Hawaii. And we did it in Zurich, Switzerland back in 2000 and, uh, 2007. And um, that race went really, really well. Um, I didn't have any major faux pas, um, but the training for that was about the mental preparedness, and it was actually more mental than physical. Um, and that first Ironman triathlon told me that in order to do anything that's going to be arduous, that's going to be physically demanding, that's going to be dangerous, um, that's going to need mental focused attention 24-7, um, that was the best race for me to get into that mindset because it was the seven months of, tr of constant training to do that Ironman that, that, that solidified that mental toughness. Um, that training program for seven months, no exaggeration, was six days a week. There was one day off I didn't work out. It was by the numbers, by the hour. Um, at the time, I was a patrol lieutenant for fish and game. I was a game warden lieutenant. Wasn't in special operations yet doing the uh, Met stuff, but I was running a patrol squad. And that was during the time that we were still starting to do cartel marijuana work, you know, with the sheriff's office. So you can imagine the demands at work and then trying to 
get an hour long swim in at four in the morning or go run five, 10 miles and then go do your bike run, whether you're on a trainer or you're actually on your bike and get all that in. And then, you know, it, it was, it was arduous to put it mildly. I mean, family, family commitments and events and friends and those things just completely went on the wayside. There was very little of that for that seven month training regiment to get up to completing that first Ironman triathlon in Zurich, Switzerland. And then again, in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, two years later, close to me here at home. Right. Um, but long-windedly what that taught me was we started to get into the Baja race circuit in 06. So it was all kind of happening around the same time, but we never thought of soloing these races because they are so dangerous. Uh, you gotta be mentally focused on everything in front of you. You're going at high speeds. You're looking way ahead. You're looking for booby traps. The terrain changes constantly. The speeds in Baja are a lot faster than like desert riding in say California where I grew up. So mental commitment and mental focus was more important from a safety standpoint, from surviving anything right. in the Baja, in the Baja. And so, um, the triathlons taught me that. So physically preparing for the Baja race, um, certainly there weren't as many demands on my body as say an Ironman triathlon of 142 miles, but being in the saddle on an ATV for 17 hours, 18 hours without any relief where you're going into pit stops to get gas every 50 miles that are less than five minutes. They're usually three minutes long. You might stop twice in the race and get off the bike for 15 minutes max while a tire has changed and oil filter has changed or or uh, you know, an air filter or something like that. But it's just exhausting. You know, it is just exhausting not to have that break on your body and your mind and you know, for that duration of time. Um, and there's so many different techniques, and I know you and I have started to discuss it before the broadcast of what do you do to stay focused on this stuff? And the first the first thing is that preparation. The preparation is, you know. I train the way I perform. I train the way I fight. I train the way I work. And um, the more time in the saddle when you're racing a quad or racing a buggy or like this thin green line razor side by side behind me, which we'll talk about later. The bottom line is you just got to be in the saddle and you got to be out long distances, long hours to the point of discomfort and getting so familiar with the machine and with your abilities to react to terrain changes at certain speeds to be competitive that you just do it by sheer pushing your exhaustion limit, you know, uh, train, overtrain, overtrain, ride more than you need to. Um, obviously I feel like I'm a skilled rider adequately uh, right. to a certain level on a quad or I wouldn't be racing in Baja, but I don't ride that long every day. Right. And I don't ride in terrain where I'm going against trophy trucks that are coming up behind me, buggies, motorcycles. I mean, there's so many different crazy vehicles on this race course and what people don't realize um, about the Baja, especially the Baja races in Mexico, is approximately only only 50 percent of all the vehicles in all the classes that enter that race of the, of the hundreds or thousands of vehicles will even finish the race. And it doesn't have anything to do with the driving. It just has to do with the challenges of the Baja terrain and how brutal it is on machines. Um, the heat, the dust, you know, the terrain, axles, suspension, everything. And that's if, that's if you're safe and don't have a crash. That's if someone doesn't crash into you. That's if you don't go into a booby trap that some of these crazy fans put out on the race course, which I have fallen into. And that was the reason I did not make the finish line in time in the 2010 Baja 500. And we can talk about that. But the, the bottom line is just 
doing something so continuously and preparing your body and your mind so, you know, in such a long duration that when you go to race time with the adrenaline factor, nutrition, hydration, and having a really good game plan. And something when I talk about game plans, John, it's, it's operational planning like in any special operations mission I would do with men. Where is my support? Where is my, where is my hydration? Where's my nutrition? What happens if the bike crashes? Do, is my sat phone charged up? How fast can I get to my satellite phone to call a chase vehicle to get me a part that I can't carry with me if I break something, if I have a flat tire? All of which have happened in every race I've ever done in Baja. So um, the logistics of preparation, and again, you, you talk about teamwork. And even though this is a solo Ironman event, and ultimately it's up to me to finish the race or for Jeff to finish it on a bike, which he did amazingly in 2010, um, if I, if we did not have the team that we had to put this thing together, like a Met team behind me, or, you know, like a great security team between you doing a shine down or a Nickelback concert, we couldn't pull off the, we can pull off the mission, brother. We just couldn't. Right. And so the chase vehicles and the chase drivers and our medical trauma support and all of the preparation that goes into doing one of those races two weeks, sometimes three weeks before the race down at the race venue. And then all the countless hundreds and hundreds of hours behind the scenes in the States, just prepping the machine, getting the technology, setting the suspension, breaking everything in, learning your limitations, changing uh, everything for comfort from riding gear. And for me, um, which near and dear to both of us, the one thing that keeps me focused and gives me that little extra juice when I'm totally wrecked and exhausted, 10, 11, 12 hours into this race, and I'm maybe 350 miles on an unprotected quad over desert terrain, and what am I doing? I'm listening to my iPod and I'm rocking out to shine down songs and rush and, you know, you name it. I'm, I'm going through the whole playlist that I have calculated and crafted for hundreds and hundreds of songs to give me that pick me up with some inspirational, motivational lyrics that give me that juice, you know, to keep going and really just feel completely elated and blessed to be alive during that event. Um, that's one tool that has really worked for me. And like many of us that work out, um, seldomly am I doing it without music. So right. that's, that's, that's been one kind of cool ticket and key that, uh, that helped me um, survive both of these races and successfully complete one. And, you know, from a historical standpoint. Right. So growing up, I, I love the Smokey, the Bandit movies, the Cannibal Run. And that, as we get to current day, like the Fast and Furious stuff, there's always a fascination with fast cars, fast trucks, tanks, and all this stuff. But when you watch, and I know we talked about Dust of Glory and, Mm-hmm. But if you just watch the trailer, you get the sense of this is a this isn't fake. This is obviously real. And when you first get there, is the first year you do it. Was there a sense of holy cow? This is like a this is a circus. This is a carnival. This is pure bedlam. Like that must be very like I'm here. Like this is cool, dude. It's it's the wild freaking west down there, man. It, it's <laughs> like you know. And, and what was crazy is. Um, there's a little bit of a backstory that, that I think is worth telling is I remember how I found Baja and why we even started riding down there before we even thought about racing. And uh, a good friend of mine, a guy by the name of Greg Rowe, who was a pro Baja racer on a quad, uh, multi-time Baja 1000 championship, actually did the Baja 2000. The one time they did the Baja 2000, all the way from Ensenada to the tip down to La Paz and back. And he actually, he actually completed that race and won that race. Um, but I remember being up here in Montana and this is like uh, 2003, 2004 ish. 
And I pick up, a, I'm, I'm hunting whitetail, it's snowing, I'm coming in from hunts in the afternoon, and I got a copy of ATV Sport Magazine. And I remember reading an article that was um, Baja Tours done by a pro racer, Greg Rowe, right? And basically takes you out on the Baja course on your quads or your bikes, does the whole chase vehicle thing, and you actually do the whole 500 course, but you do it as a, a, basically a chase ride. Right. Like you're doing a pre-run ride to prepare like we do in Bada Per for a race, but you're taking five days and you're staying in, you know, hotels at night. You're staying on the Sea of Cortez side. You're on the Pacific Ocean side. I remember I was so moved by that. I called, called my riding buddies at home, Jeff being the top one. You won't believe what we can do. There's an actual tour. We got to do this. You know, let's take it to another level. So we did a, a ride down there with Greg, three of us uh, on quads and it was the biggest, most exhilarating adventure to put on a camelback and ride on a machine where you can go on pavement through cities, in dirt, in terrain, in desert, in the forest, without any restrictions on where you can take this vehicle. It was it was the adventure of a lifetime, man. And it was. It was carnival. Just like you said, it was like mayhem out there. And I remember we fell in love with it. And Greg saw how we rode. And he said, you guys need to start racing. You guys are maniacs, but safe on quads. Right. You've got the speed. And I'm like, yeah, man, I've heard the stories. I'm not going to. It's one is super expensive. It's really dangerous. There's this booby trap contingent. Where are we going to find the support? You know, we're just, I said, you know, I'm a poor game warden working in California. My brother's here's a fabricator. We're not going to do this. Well, lo and behold, that movie you just mentioned, Dust to Glory dropped and it dropped worldwide. And I want to say it was in 2004. And I remember seeing it at the theater, the Century Theater in Silicon Valley. And I can honestly say, I think I dragged, I don't know how many people I dragged to that movie and probably saw it in the theater about six or seven times. Right. Um, when I brought my race team to see it, we all looked at each other when we walked out of that, uh, that theater. And Jeff looked at me and said, oh, shit. I see the look in your <laughs> eye. I said, we are fucking racing Baja somehow, some way. And um, that's when our first Baja 500 race started on a quad with three riders. And that was a 2006 race down there. Yeah. What if uh, you kind of just talked about, but you're still active duty law enforcement. And so doing stuff, when you do the first one kind of, was it, for me, I, I, I do think it's kind of unique that you have to decompartmentalize the law enforcement aspect of what you're doing. But let's right. also put that mentality and physicality to the training for this. When you're out there in your ATV by yourself, is there ever a time where you're kind of like zoning off, like talk, thinking about a case or an issue you've had at work? Or is it, it it's, for me, it's very intriguing that you have two, a job and what you're doing now that both, both take a lot of mental endurance just to kind of. But it's kind of, I like the kind of like the ebb and flow of kind of like your mentality for both these things. Yeah, that's a really good question, brother. And there are those distracting thoughts. And up until, well, actually, even when we did the, you know, when I finally accomplished soloing the 500 in 2013, that came literally a month and a half before we started the pilot program for our MET team. That's you crazy. Know, which which it, it, it was. And I knew that that was going to be my last and maybe final attempt to ever do that down in Baja because I knew we were about to build Met. We had already done pre-training for it in April. The, the race was in June. I had already almost accomplished the goal in 2010, but I didn't quite make that, that, that goal. Um, so I had to do it in 2013, and I knew I had to do it then and only then because I knew once Met started in July – 
that was going to be an all in complete immersion in commitment that I could not be distracted on to build a new team like that, be part of a new team like that and try to be successful on a new team that had never worked, you know, any, anywhere in the conservation world. So, um, I'm glad I raced it when I did. I'm glad I didn't have the distracting thoughts of having missions right behind me and, you know, uh, you know, eight, eight to 12 guys to look after and worry about what we were going to be doing next. Um, it is very hard for me to, um, completely disconnect from anything work-wise because I'm so passionate about it, as you know, and I'm so committed to it. Um, but the nice thing is when we went down, uh, and did that race in June, 2013, uh, once you get to certain places, you know, you don't have cell coverage. And if you do that, that phone is off because you are in the field and you are, you are riding, you know, you are grinding, you are meeting chase teams. Um, you're, you're on a very regimented schedule, just like a training operational schedule for special operations at work. It really, to, to successfully do a Baja race, like I mentioned a little bit before, it is literally like, it's no different than plan than an operational plan from start to finish, from building the team, from prepping the bike. And it's not a week, it's not two weeks. Um, it literally starts a year before you race. It's that, that, that serious. I have a lot of SEAL team buddies that have been pulled into the Baja arena and they were like blown away. They like, man, I feel like I'm operating again back on mission because right. what we had to do to get the car ready, how we were going to time transitions. Everything's about coordination, like doing a, you know, getting, getting ready for a big shinedown concert and making sure the timing's all right. Your people are in place, doing the walkthroughs, the prep, everything that, you know, I'm preaching to the choir on, but, right. um, but it, distracting thoughts are a problem. They're a problem all the time. The longer you're into this race, distracting thoughts on doing an Ironman triathlon, thinking about work, thinking about family stuff, thinking about loss, tragedy, all those different things. And I remember in both uh, 500 solo attempts, I would find myself starting to drift and starting to worry. And there's a few moments, well, more than a few that you start taking your attention off. And all of a sudden you get so comfortable going at a certain speed and you're kind of, you're kind of in, you know, you're almost on afterburner, if you will, you're just kind of on autopilot. And then all of a sudden, you know, I see that rut and I hit that rut and I'm not quite ready for that rut. And I blew a tire. You know, and what did that do? That set me back 45 minutes in my race. I was 70 miles into my race in 2013, already knowing how close I had been in 2010 and not made it and how just beat up and tore up and exhausted I was after the 2010 crash. Um, so every little, every little like faux pas that happens when I blew that tire and I was only like a, like a couple hours into my race, that was a shocker, man. That was demoralizing. Right. And then it was, okay, just like anything. NFL quarterbacks, you know, they throw a pick, we make a mistake on a mission, you know, we miss a target on a, on a, on a gun training, whatever the case may be. It's like, okay, next play, next evolution. Don't hover on that. And for me with all the intensity of awe, and I got to admit, you know, there's, there was a lot of, uh, there's some fearful moments in a Baja race, much more than any other, you know, type of race or sporting event I've ever done because everything is so open everything is so unknown and anything can happen down there. Right. I mean, I can have another race machine come up behind me that I'm not going to hear till the last second. Um, I could have a crashed vehicle right around the corner in front of me. Uh, I could have a booby trap in front of me. I could have a multitude of different issues when I go onto pavement and I'm going through a city stretch, right? It's 60 miles an hour and cars and fans and chase vehicles are weaving in and out of traffic to get to their deadlines where they got to meet their race that, you know, basically their race vehicle. So, one thing about Baja is a lot of fear. It's a lot of excitement and it's a lot of self-talk 
and refocusing on what is immediately ahead of you and try not to think too far ahead into the race because that's where you'll sabotage yourself. If you could kind of just tell, like talk about like diff- obviously the different terrain. I was unaware that you, they actually don't shut down the highways or roads. They don't. With red light, green light traffic. And so if you can talk about that, I definitely want to talk about the booby traps because I saw the, the uh, watched the documentary and I'm just kind of like, this is so like, this is like gladiator games. Like make this like almost like Death Race 2000, that old Carradine Stallone movie. Yeah. And I'm kind of just like, this is really interesting. It's like one of the things I want to, on top of that is the, if you do see a booby trap as another racer, are you obligated uh, knowing you, I know you are, but I, are you obligated to help another team radio? How do you communicate with another team saying, hey, watch out for this quarter? Or, hey, there's a large crowd of people with cameras out. They probably put some of their bullshit here. So how do you kind of like, deal with all that? Yeah, man, that's another great question because that's always an issue in Baja. And honestly, that was one of the things that really had us on the fence of even racing down there to begin with. Because, you know, I've always said – you know, at work, especially when you're on mission or anything you're doing in life, you can only control what you can control. And you got to kind of let everything else go of the environment. You're going to have to do what we say on met, fill and flow around obstacles and, you know, impediments that you run across. Um, but the idea of coming around a corner with, and you're having a great race, you've got the bike prep, you're ready, you're mentally, you know, you're communicating with your team, all the safety protocol are there. You come around the corner and there's just a G out where someone's cut a big ditch that's three feet deep and your quad goes into it. And unlike a trophy truck where you're going to maybe lose a fender, you know, or, you know, jump and then keep going, a quad or a bike goes into something like that, we could die. And there have been, you know, motorcycle and ATV riders that have been severely injured and actually died because they've hit booby traps. So the first race in 06 I was extra careful. Um, I knew that I'd obviously seen Dust of Glory, talked to a lot of pro racers down there. So I was going at 80% my capacity of speed that entire race. And that was just, for us, it was like, okay, do we need to be, do we need to podium in this race the first time? Or do we need to go learn Baja and just complete the right. race? Because, because if you finish the race, John, in Baja, you, you won. If you right, actually right. get a finisher pin, we feel like, hey, we're, we're fighting Baja on ourselves. We're not fighting other teams. So I would go, you know, at 80% speed for most of the course, wanted to make sure I didn't get in over my head. And then when I got to, like you just said, a, a conglomeration of fans that are in the middle of nowhere, and, right. you know, you see a little creek next to you, and there's a dirt, there's kind of a dirt Arizona crossing, you're going, ah, I wonder what's there. And I would go into those things almost at a snail's pace and slow way down. I'd be like in second gear, and everyone's saying, go faster, faster, and I can see the pit trap, and I'd like, you know, here's my finger, no, 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 no. <laughs> No, 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 no. And they'd like, oh, fooey. He didn't get caught. And I'd go around the water or I'd go around the ditch. Um, so I never got caught in any of those traps, but it was just the fact that they were there. All the racers have to be prepared for it. Now, me, because I'm always going to help any any person stranded that I'm going right. to come across. It's just how I'm wired. And I'm going to talk about the 2010 race in a minute because that factored into me not making the finish line as well as a booby trap uh, hang up. Um, but yeah, what I'll do is, um, I obviously if I run across a booby trap and go around it, I can't stop my race immediately Right. and get up on the side, pull out a sat phone, turn on the sat phone, talk to my team, have them relay it, you know, to basically score weatherman traffic to get it all out there. And weatherman is the main guy and his son now that you saw in the video, yep. um, he's got a communication system that gets to everybody. 
and and it just really helps from a safety standpoint but the next pit i get into um, which is you, every 50 miles for fuel, I'm going to say, hey, by the way, back at this mile, according to my GPS, what I remember this landmark being, there's, you know, there's, there's a great, there's a rake, there's a G out, there's a big ditch, um, whatever, that the fans have kind of set there for a, a fun and games, uh, you know, booby trap. Can you radio it up? Or, you know, obviously these pit guys can do it. We got to focus on racing. But yeah, we're, we're always communicating. Um, Baja is a family. Um, I had the privilege of pre-running a day or two with Robbie Gordon in the 2013 race, especially Um, my good buddy, Blake Bechtel, who was down there as a chase supporter and a sponsor of our team, knew, uh, knew, um, knew Robbie and his whole team from, from their, their NASCAR days together. They both had NASCAR teams (laughs) and you saw Robbie and dust glory. And now I'm riding with him in the back of his truck through the Borrego desert on a pre-run day. And I'm just like, Wow. And that was the first time our little quad and bike team had ever really integrated or, you know, we were even on the radar of these trophy truck teams. So for the 2013 race, I was extra blessed because Robbie and his co-driver, Charlie, they kind of put the word out in the trophy truck community. Hey, there's a little light quad out there with a guy 57A. And then there's a motorcycle out there, his buddy riding him in, his brother on a KTM. Watch for those guys because the bikes and quads go out first. Those trophy trucks come next and they come three hours behind us to start the race and then buggies and beetles and okay. side-by-sides all those are, are behind the trophy trucks so it's kind of a catch-22 if you're competitive and you can get through that race fast enough like jeff for instance in 2010 race the first time we both soloed he's on his ktm motorcycle i'm on a yfz yamaha quad he raced so fast on his bike he actually placed third place he podiumed in the sportsman's class by himself against teams with three to five riders so and he got into the finish line right before dark about 10 minutes ahead of the first trophy truck so he had never known what it was like to have trophy trucks coming up on us at the end of a race and basically they'll eat you up if you are not communicating or getting out of the way um me being on a quad which can't go as fast as a bike on some of this terrain no matter how well i'm riding or efficiently I'm going to get trophy trucks on my ass. I'm going to have to deal with the trophy trucks in the 500 race, at least um, two or three hours before I hit the finish line, if all goes as planned. So in the 2013 race, the very last hundred miles of that race, since my brother Jeff had already done his, he had conquered his solo attempt in 2010. So he came down simply to chase, to co-ride with me and then to jump on his bike and ride in with me for the last hundred miles of the race. So we could actually be together because every time, because, because bro, every time we would race, he'd be on a different machine. I'm on a different machine. If we were on the same machine, we were running different relays. So we never actually got to cross the finish line or ride side by side in a race actually in Baja. So he jumped on and the last hundred miles were, were a highlight of my life. I'm internally grateful to sharing that with my brother, much love for Jeff Moore. Um, and he rode the last hundred miles in with me, but to that, to that effect, he finally got to see what trophy trucks were like in the dark when they're coming up on you, 900 horsepower, a breathing dragon, you know, we're coming into Ensenada, the, the course is tore up, fog is setting in on that Pacific ocean peninsula. So the dust is not evaporating. We're, we're, we were in dust, John, no exaggeration. The last 30 miles of the race to get me to the finish line where I could, I could see four feet in front of my bike with all my LEDs at full power. And knowing where we're hearing trophy trucks coming up behind us, right. and they're, seeing, they're seeing the lights of Ensenada, and they know they're close to getting home to get into place. So, yeah, um, but, you know, 
Robbie and Charlie uh, in their speed truck won that race that year. We watched them go by us, and they kind of put the word out. And so the trophy trucks kind of were, were keeping an eye on us, which was real cool. But it was, dude, it was as exciting and as dangerous and as crazy as anything I've ever been in in the field, whether it's a, a gunfight on the Met team or any of the right. crazy stuff we saw at work. Baja is dangerous. And, and it's also really, really exciting and, like you said, a fun gladiator sport because of it. You kind of mentioned earlier, it's one of my questions, actually, knowing you, you have a duty to act and help others when you say yourself, if you, if you're coming around the corner and you see a racer that, man, they broke their wrist or a leg or there's a fire or something like that, are you kind of like, I got to help this person? Or are you kind of like, how do, how do I, because I know you want to help, but you also have to, there's the safety of all for you as well. You just can't get out of your car and be, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a, it's a fine line. You absolutely, I feel you absolutely have right. to help. We have, we have an unwritten ethic in the Baja racing community or any desert racing community in, in the States, let's say that if you see somebody hurt or you see a crash vehicle, you got to stop, you got to check them out. You got to make sure they're okay. If they're not okay, get on a phone, call help, lend help where you can. And obviously if it's something life-threatening, my race is over. You know, I'm a first responder. I've got some trauma med right. med med medicine training behind me. I've had to utilize it at work and, you know, and in the field on backcountry, you know, adventures that have gone awry. So I'm going to stay there and I'm going to help that person. And most other racers are going to do the same thing. Um, that brings up a story from 2010 that integrates both booby traps and helping, helping, helping a vehicle that's disabled. And what do you do? I mean, if it means staying on the race course where you finish your race and, and keeping in right. mind, you are racing for a team, you are racing for a goal that's taken a lot of money, time and risk to do. Um, but what happened in the 2010 race was um, Jeff had made it to the finish line at, at dark I was coming, um, I was many, many hours behind him because I started later and I was on a quad, which is a slower machine, but I was only 30 miles from the Ensenada finish line in 2010 on the 500. And that year, the 500 course was grueling. It went over the Borrego desert, oh, San Jacinto's. Wow. I mean, it was, it was 110 degree day. So you can imagine, and it was also the first Baja attempt where I didn't have the best seat. I didn't have the best suspension. The bike wasn't as comfortable as it should have been. So I was tore up. I was tore up five hours into that race and basically just pushing through. I didn't realize it, but my inner thighs, my whole back <laughs> end of my butt were actually bloody. Skin was off of them from the, the, the seat slapping so hard. And there were ways to remedy that for the 2013 race that we changed on the bike considerably. But I didn't know how damaged I was, but I wasn't feeling it because again, mental excitement, adrenaline, complete the mission. There is no quit to this mission. Unless somebody takes me out, we're going to get it done. Um, so I am seeing the lights of Ensenada on a clear night. It's, uh, just before midnight. I've been on the bike. Oh man. I don't know. 17 hours at this point, probably. And I'm like, this is a stone's throw. This is an easy part of the course. I was going about 25 miles an hour. I had my iPod going, my lights were working. And next thing I know, the road just goes straight. And it looked like the road continued straight. And next thing I know, I'm just flying through the air. And my, my quad Jeez. is nose diving. And 12, 12 to 15 feet below me was the bottom of the wash. And what had happened, John, is that was a, a wash that hit. It was basically an erosion cut where the creek had completely washed out a bank. There was a bunch of yellow flagging put on the race course. So everybody took a detour to the left. Some fans late in the race had taken off that flagging. So everybody after dark 
that didn't have it marked on their GPS or knew about that, that particular, uh, uh, you know, uh, wash warning, um, they were falling into it. So I went right into it. I started screaming cause it shocked me. I piled, drove the bike straight down into the wash, which fortunately was kind of soft sand. It wasn't rock or I probably wouldn't be here talking about it. Right. And then the bike, the bike flipped, it flipped onto me. I crawled out from under the bike. Um, I ejected my wrist pretty good. I had, uh, slightly dislocated my shoulder, but not to where I was out of the game. Um, I was bumped and bruised, but I was okay. Nothing was terminal. Nothing was broken. The bike was upside down. And first thing that came to mind when I got my you know, wits about me and got up in this dark wash now that I just fell into was who's behind me, who's going to land on me. Let's keep other people from falling into this thing. So I had to, you know, flip the bike back upside down. It was flooded, get it to run, get the quad out of the way. I had a bent tie rod on the front right side of the bike, so I couldn't steer the bike properly. I didn't have a tie rod with me or the tools. That was a chase vehicle deal, so I knew I was going to need help. And sure enough, brother, what happened within 15 minutes of me trying to work on my bike is I heard a motorcycle. Yep. And I see the lights of this motorcycle, and it's a single light motorcycle, and I went, oh, man, this is not good. So I'm waving my hands. I'm throwing my LED lights on my helmet, so he hopefully sees me. He doesn't see me. And I hear just this, oh, fuck. Bam. Oh. And he comes right in, but he jumped off the bike before it went off the cliff, but his bike landed next to me where I was trying to, you know, tell this guy. And I'll never forget, you know, it's, it's crisis moments like this where you make a complete stranger and you're bonded for life. So right. I'll never forget, he was an anesthesiologist from Texas, Arcana, Texas, named Patrick. Um, about six, five, great big dude. He was the fifth rider of a relay team trying to finish their first Baja 500 on a motorcycle, a team of doctors. They had never completed a race. They'd always broken down. And he, like me, was 25 miles from the finish line. And now his bike's in the wash. And then we immediately bonded. I told him what happened to me. I said, hey, look, man, let me help get your bike going. You help me get my quad going and let's ride in together for safety because it's already after midnight. We're both exhausted. Let's do it. Instantly make a team. Right. Well, his bike was sitting in the wash. He was about to move it. We were moving my bike and then we hear a, a buggy come by. And this <laughs> is like, this is a class. Yeah. This is a class one buggy. That's a big dollar machine. Yeah. It's a big buggy. We see the lights and I see him bouncing over the wash. I go, uh Oh, and sure enough, it was a guy and his son on a pro race team and they come into the wash and it was like, you know, a bad cartoon that turns to slow motion where you just go, yeah, the train, the yard sale is going to happen. There's nothing you can do to stop yep. it. And that buggy landed right on top of Pat's um, Honda motorcycle, bounced off of it, landed. And these guys thought they, they, they landed and probably killed a motorcycle rider. So they come to a screeching halt. Pat's bike frame breaks. His bike is completely destroyed. They look back. They're like, oh, my gosh, what did we do? And I, and I went and told them. No one was on the bike, man. We're both stranded. Let people know we're working our way out of it. There's nothing those guys could have done to help us. So we sent them on their way. But they stopped. And to your point, this was a, a competitive team that was exhausted on a high-dollar buggy team. And they were very concerned they hurt somebody. Unfortunately, they didn't. But we sent them on their way. They did the right thing by stopping. So, we, so Pat and I had to sit at that part of the race course for five hours waiting for my chase team to come back around on the race course, get me a tie rod, build my bike up so I could make a finish line. It was a 22 hour deadline that year because the course was so arduous. So I had until 
uh, I had until about five in the morning to make the, to make the, uh, finish line Right. when, and the whole night, man, I was trying to ride my quad. Pat's bike was trashed. I said, look, my tie rods bent the front wheels flopping around, but I think we can still maneuver this thing. Let's try to make a little bit of ground, get on the back of my bike, grab your stuff. So we're riding bro to bro. This is a 250 pound, six foot four dude on a quad. I'm exhausted. We're pulling wheelies. We're crashing the tie rod bends. We're done. So we're stranded and we finally get a tie rod on that machine. Um, very like probably 60 minutes from the race deadline. 60 minutes I've got to make the finish to actually be a finisher and, com and complete the Baja 500 solo, right? First to do so. So Pat jumps into our chase vehicle, which now Jeff's driving because he's with the chase team after doing his race, that stud. Um, he's exhausted, but he's helping us out because he wants to get his partner, me, home. They take Patrick. I jump on my quad, and I start racing for the finish line in Ensenada. Sun's starting to come up. It should be uh, dark. I'm getting worried. You know what? You know, I'm, I'm just, right. I'm yep. going, and I am hauling ass, man, to make the finish line. And all of a sudden, I see a Class 11 Volkswagen, one of the Beatles, Mexican Beetle team, and they are off the side. And there's guys waving for help. And I had that moment where I'm looking at the clock and I go, if I stop, I'm not going to make the finish line. The solo attempt is over. I could not, not help them. Yeah. And I pulled over, said, what do you guys need? One guy was hurt. They were off the side. So I was helping him with a toe strap uh, off my quad, get, helping him push started, getting it going so they could hobble in. We spent probably a solid 10, 15 minutes doing that. And they got back on the course. And then I raced for the finish line and I came through 22 minutes after the deadline, but the checkered flag guys kind of hung out there. My brother was there filming that event coming yep. to the finish line. And it was, you know, it was one of those bittersweet things, man. I was so exhausted. I didn't know if I was elated to just be alive and have made it. If I was heartbroken that I didn't make the finish line, if I was, you know, really happy and elated that there were so many calamities, but there was, there were, there was these teams and brotherhoods and people working through adversity together. Like me and Patrick, when he crashed this, this buggy team, uh, experiencing trophy trucks, you know, in race mode for the first time on my butt, cause that had never happened. So it was, it was a mix of emotions. Um, but everybody that I ran across that was hurt or anybody that saw me in any type of calamity stopped. And that's what Baja's about. And that's what made me feel like, just like I was at home working with my brothers on the Met team, we have a family down here in Baja. We're not going to let each other go unprotected. I love that. I kind of pictured you two on the uh, thing together, like Dumb and Dumber, going around that corner, pulling into uh, Aspen, Colorado. <laughs> you know what? And it was it was Dumber, Dumber, like, <laughs> like, like cubed, man, because you got to remember, this, this guy's big. And I'm six foot. He's six five. He's got all his gear. I've got all my gear. And, you know, he doesn't really know me. So I'm like, I said, dude, don't be afraid. Hold me tight and lean forward. Yeah. Because Rips we're on an uphill. Right. I said, just we got to be pals. And so he's holding way back and he's leaning off the back of a quad. He's not a quad rider. So all that weight's on the back. So this thing wants to flip like a Bronco. And, you know, my, my arms right now, are they're just freaking rubber spaghetti after fighting the course all, all, all day and night, you know. Um, we made it about 400 yards before the tie rod gave out. And honestly, probably glad we couldn't go any further because I think the way we were equipped, the two of us on that machine and at the fatigue factor, it might have been a real, real bad, bad outcome. But, right. um, but we made it, man. And uh, 
I just, um, I knew I needed, you know, that was, even though I made the finish line, I didn't officially finish. And it was just, there were so many mistakes made and so many lessons learned. I mean, way too many to talk about. They'll be in a document someday. But um, I knew I had to go back and I knew I had to do it. And, and that's what 2013 was about. And that's what made 2013 so sweet. Just because I knew what was ahead of me. We were so much better prepared, better prepared mentally. Knew what to expect. Familiarization was part of the key to success. And having um, a chase team that was so much more equipped and dialed in and having like Jeff, my brother, Jeff Moore running the chase team basically while I was racing alone was a godsend to success because both of us out on the course, knowing what we knew about Baja, but to combine for one effort really, really made that, made that race happen. And uh, coming across the finish line together with him, you know, and I finished that race actually in a, in a real, even with that, that flat tire, I blew it's mile 70 and that 45 minute delay. I made it into the finish line just over 16 hours um, solo. And out of the 24 machines that entered only 12 finished and I placed sixth. So I felt really good with that performance um, doing it alone. Right. And, and after what had happened in 2010. So that was, that was a magical race. And then the kids of El Oasis that we support, um, we did a lot with them during the 2013 race and were able to bring more, school funding more um you know support for the facility for everything from food to books to the library just to you know having all those kids in the mix to get the education they need where they got a loving environment and then move on and, and do something really really cool with their lives in college and professions and definitely stay out of falling into you know commercial groups down there and what happens to a lot of homeless orphans down there it's just right. it's a tragic story tragic story down there and hopefully they help teach them not to build booby traps for you guys the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool that there is a charity aspect to what you do. Um, it's, it's, it's awesome that you kind of have like this physical mental thing you go through, but at the, at the same time, you kind of, you still helping other people. That, that's a very selfless. It's very cool thing to do. Is there a rule or is like, what are you allowed to have on your vehicle with you? Like, can you have bandages, a med kit? Can you have, Yes. a tire jack like is there anything like you're not allowed to have no um you know there's certain things you have to have uh through the score racing basically the rules of the the, the official rule book um a lot of it's for safety especially like you know lighting color lighting you know so other vehicles can see you as they come up behind you ahead of you things like that um different things for uh, fire protection okay. various different things there isn't a limit of what you can bring per se to keep you in the game but there's a realistic balance of how much stuff can a vehicle carry and still actually be competitive in the race um and, you know without overloading the suspension without you know burdening the vehicle when you're on a bike in a quad it's pretty limited what you can carry Obviously, with side by sides now, like the like the thin green line racer behind me, um, that particular class, the side by side class now is is about 60, 70 percent of the whole desert racing field at any given race. So in Baja now, there's so many side by sides they they over they overnumber and outnumber significantly the trophy trucks, the buggies, the beetles, uh, the quads, and the bikes. On a side-by-side, -side, and now that I'm doing the side-by-side -side thing, you can carry a lot more stuff. You can carry a full spare tire, which the Razor has, a jack. You can carry medical supplies. You can carry, you know, more hydration. Um, you can carry medical supplies. Um, what we do in our bikes and our quads, in our Camelbacks, full trauma kit. Granted, it's it's a condensed one, John. That's that's kind of efficient. Right. It's for the the essential stuff you need. We carry tools to do basic repairs. 
Um, are you going to fabricate axles or, you know, right. uh, carry suspension? No, that's where those chase, those chase teams come in handy. Um, and, you know, it's really about, again, I say um, control what you can control and just be prepared for the unexpected, what we call in the Met team, fill and flow with yep. any obstacle you run across. And um, when you're on a bike and a quad, you just have to be extra careful because you are exposed. You are, you know, you don't have a breathing apparatus through your helmet when you're going through dust. You're breathing every chunk of the, these dust clouds of vehicles ahead of you. If you're, if you're staying in the dust, if that's how you like to ride. Um, you're, uh, you're dealing with the elements, the wind, the sun, the heat, all those different things. Um, and other than the camelback you have, you can't really stop and eat if you're staying on gun, so to speak, and pushing that machine. Um, so, you know, your, your pit support you have every 50 or so miles when you get fuel, they have to be planned very carefully, what you have there to replenish, what you have there in case there's a catastrophic problem. Um, and it can be done. It just needs to be planned very carefully. Some of the bigger vehicles can, uh, can get away with a little more. But again, again, Baja, Baja basically eats up 50% of all competitors. So, you know, like Robbie Gordon in his trophy truck, you know, for Red Bull, he didn't finish that race. And that's the glory, as you remember. And he had the best technology right one of the be one of the best drivers in the business great attitude great great pit support tons of resources and still half those vehicles don't finish so so we were just to get through that race safely brother and to finish effectively without completely destroying your bike or your quad is uh kind of kind of scratch my head and go i don't know how that happens right <laughs> that it's, kind of crazy. it's kind of fascinating how some people actually leave their vehicles like almost like yeah. the skeletal remains of a like a carcass, and it's kind of, it's kind of like a kind of like it must be kind of eerie, kind of driving by that, especially if it was your bike or your car, or your buggy, or you knew who that person was, and it's kind of like there's something very like post-apocalyptic about that, and it's very cool imagery. It, it really is, isn't it? You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because Patrick, you know, um, the bike rider I palled up with that night in the crash. <laughs> right. I said, Pat, I you, you cracked a frame and you broke some things, but this is this is a you know CRF four fifty. This is a state of the art, really Proper. nice on right. I said, do you want to? We can help put it on a trailer. He just goes, nope, it's a cursed bike. Let's leave it for Baja, man. Baja has won. They they Baja keeps the bike. He left his motorcycle. He took his GPS off it, all his light, everything was left there. And like you said, you see all these like Mad Max wasteland vehicles <laughs> right. along the course during the course of the guys that are broken down. And then there's some that are still on the course when we pre-run two years later that are pieces of, you know, from crashes so, so long ago. It's, it's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I love that idea of it. What are these secret checkpoints? I know they kind of touched about in the documentary and I've been reading about yeah. it, but I don't know. Like, is this like a video game where if you find that you get like a shortcut or is this something where you get time added or what is this? Yeah, the checkpoints are an interesting thing. And I actually, um, a good friend of mine, Tim Orchard, who um, runs OMF Performance Racing, makes the some of the finest race wheels for side-by-sides and quads and stuff. Okay. He's part of the uh, Pro Monster Energy and Can-Am side-by-side uh, -side team. He's actually one of the drivers. And um, he just went down and did the 500 as a last minute add-in because several dro riders dropped. And the reason I'm telling this story is they uh, they actually won in the pro pro uh, ATV or UTV category. They won first place. Um, they thought they won by a minute and 50 seconds, but they ended up winning by a minute or uh, 15 minutes because the number two team had missed a checkpoint, one of the secret checkpoints, and got a 10 minute penalty. Oh, and what okay. happened? 
what happens with that is it basically keeps you on the, the, you know, the prescribed course, the dedicated race course that's marked with score markers. It's also in GPS, Loran systems and everything that we map when we pre-run. If you deviate from that course, there's places you can deviate to get around a wash or maybe to pass a vehicle. If right. you deviate too, because there's plenty of places along the Baja race course, you can take shortcuts. You can shave time. You can get out of the dust, depending on how the course is laid out. And those of us that have been in Baja long enough and know the, know the terrain, especially pre-running a lot of the same sections year after year that we're down there, you know, down there on the peninsula, you start to learn little secrets of how to shave time and get ahead of your competitor. Well, it's not really fair. And SCORE is really smart about saying, okay, you can take that chance and we might, we might not catch you on this particular passing route, but we're going to have, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10, 20 checkpoints. If it's say a long ball 1000 race. And if you don't make, you don't hit that checkpoint, you're going to have a time penalty. Same thing on the highways. Now um, you mentioned how they don't stop traffic, how traffic is just rolling. And it used to be in the, you know, in the, in the, in the dust of glory era, uh, you know, in that, a couple scenes in that movie where they all get on pace and they're all held to a certain speed. And then it's just balls to the wall on pavement running through town. <laughs> um, 2010, they changed that. And by 2010 and 2013 for our last two solo races, they have a 60 mile an hour speed limit on the highways. And you really got to make sure you stay there because you're being tracked. And if you go over that speed limit and it shows up, you're going to get another time penalty, you know, and pretty soon some of these teams are, you know, finding themselves disqualified or they got so much time added to their, their finish. They're not competitive. So um, it's something that Roger and Elise Norman that run score racing now have done to, you know, to make it safer. Um, I'm glad they've done that. It's, it, it's already dangerous as it is. Right. Um, so the, the checkpoints I'm fine with, obviously the speed limits, you know, on pavement, um, you got too much other gladiator wild west crap going on that could hurt you. Um, booby traps are never going to go away. I did notice, um, even though 2010 was the one I fell into, um, I didn't run across one booby trap on the 2013 course at all. Um, now, were they there? They might have been. Did I avoid them? Maybe. Were they, you know, off trail a little bit? Possibly. But it seems, generally speaking, and any year could be different, but booby traps are seeming to de decrease down there um, that, that, that are positive. Um, one thing to your point, John, that you mentioned on what do you do to stay mentally focused and not get distracted and get in over your head or crash or make a mistake on the racing circuit. And one of the things is, it's the same thing I say on a hard hike, a hard hunt, a hard vet mission is don't think about the whole triathlon. Don't think about the whole 142 miles of an Ironman triathlon or the whole 405 miles of a bar 500. Think about what's in the next two miles ahead of you in this terrain. What do you have to be thinking about from what you pre-ran this last week up to your next checkpoint or your next pit stop, which is, which is every 50 miles. So in the next 50 miles, what is my objective to stay safe? What do I got to watch for? Can I stay focused for 50 miles? Get into that pit where I can actually let my mind rest for a minute when they're gassing my machine. They're checking the tires. They're checking the oil. I'm having a cold drink. Maybe I'm off the machine stretching. And then I'll go to another secondary goal, a mini goal of the next 50 miles. So it's like you're having 20 different races in your mind. You know, don't because if I think about going out and trying to do a whole race right now and think too far ahead, I'm going to fail before I even get halfway into the start. Right. right. Same thing on an Ironman triathlon. OK, I got to swim 2.4 miles in open water with a thousand, two thousand other swimmers. And I got white caps and waves and people pushing each other under. 
I'm not thinking about the bike ride right now. I'm not thinking about the marathon at the end of the right. day. I'm thinking you about, right. you can't, man. I'm thinking about, I got to get to the first buoy and that's one lap. That's 1.2 miles of the 2.4 mile course. And once I get to the beach and jump in the water again, now I got to think about the second lap. <sighs> Breathe. I made it out of the second lap. I'm running out of the water. The wetsuit's coming off. Now I can focus on what's the next 112 miles on this bicycle going to be like. Right. And I'm going to break it down every 20 miles because it, it'll really mess you up when you're getting tired, when you're getting fatigued. And once, you're, once your mental doubt comes in, it is, it is hard to stay committed. But, uh, but you can do it if you just chunk it into mini races. Right. Before I let you go, let's kind of talk about the thin, red, the thin green line and the vehicle behind you and kind of what you're doing with that. Uh, I think you have some awesome stuff you have planned for that. Yeah. I'm going to move out of the way just a little bit. You see a little bit more of the Razor. And, uh, yeah, that, that machine is, is really cool. It's kind of a, a, a sponsored bike and with the help of Polaris and Montana power products up here in, uh, Libby, Montana and, and, uh, and all my, uh, conservation sponsors and weapon right. sponsors and Hayes taxidermy studio, my buddy, Johnny Hayes up here and, you know, getting people outside of just the, the gun sponsorships and, and the product sponsorships to support this. This is really an extension of the thin green line message that we have in the thin green line film. Um, taking the outdoor racing off-road recreational community that may not hunt or fish, they may not be, you know, traditional conservation enthusiasts as we have known, you know, for hundreds of years, but they love the outdoors. They want to protect the outdoors and ethical and, 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 you know, uh, outdoor enthusiasts that are into OHV racing, recreational riding, whether it's bikes, quads, side-by-sides, trophy trucks, or whatever, they want to protect our environment. They don't, they only want to ride where it's safe to do so with delineated areas that they're not tearing up sensitive habitat. And they're also adding, becoming a force multiplier to strengthening our thin green line of wildlife and wildland and waterway protection here in the U.S. And also border security and everything else we have from the foreign threats that I've talked about with you with hidden war and tainted cannabis and everything the cartels are doing. So, um, it's allowing me to take my off love for off-road racing in Baja and integrate it into the thin green line message. And this razor with the sponsors that are all over the bike with a camouflage. Um, this is a, a recoil magazine, recoil TV, recoil off grid that I write articles for that are part of my brand that I also, you know, that we host the thin green line film series through. We made this the recoil thin green line razor. Got a really nice uh, go this way. Both doors have the thin green line flag, which looks awesome. Kind of looks cool, yeah. Um, this is a XP Pro Ultimate uh, 2020, which is their highest level bike that is basically the base for a full-blown Baja race bike, if you will. Um, this and the Can-Am are kind of the two top machines doing it. So it's an absolute amazing machine, technology-wise, suspension-wise, power-wise. All I can say is I wish I had this in 2013. And man, my, my butt, my body, and my... <laughs> everything would have felt a lot better but we're gonna you'll see this in the in the film series or some video stuff we just shot for it you're gonna see a feature uh in recoil and recoil off grid magazine that i just wrote the article for that's in edit right now um and you'll see it pop up in certain venues around the u.s uh that just support the conservation message whether it's second amendment you know veteran affairs conservation groups uh covid relief groups um, patriotic parades, you name it. This right. thing um, has a trailer built for it as well. And it, it's going to be tooling around the U.S. and trying to inspire and, and spread the message. And I really appreciate you bringing it up. 
No, it's uh, it's cool seeing everything you love can kind of interwine with each other. You can all you can make it all kind of the law enforcement, conservation, the racing, the charity. The it's very cool that you're able to be this guy that can kind of do everything you love and have it all kind of mixed so well together. It's it's just awesome. And it's cool, man. It's something I really appreciate in you is you bring up not only our, our work operationally protecting people in law enforcement security work, but also our, our mutual love for music. And what I see next is that rock and roll side of me, just like the side of you. There are so many musicians that love the environment. I see our brothers from Shinedown. I see the guys of Rush. I see the guys. And, I, and I'm, I'm only talking about a couple um, integrating the music groups that we know and love in the rock and roll world into this awareness, too. Um, especially with what we've seen through COVID and some of the, you know, we have a lot of patriots in the music industry. Right. Our, our favorite rock bands that, that we work with and for. And I'd like to see that happen next. And that's something I look forward to, uh, you know, talking about more with you as we go down the road on this uh, great adventure. No, oh, I love it. You can ride that thing through a crowd. Or maybe I'll be with a singer. And we'll just ride, we'll ride with you through the crowd. That way we don't have to walk through <laughs> all the drunk people. Yeah. Um, before I go, I wanted to say that I'm so grateful for this talk with you. And what I've noticed is that I need to go back and reread Hidden War. Uh, I was going to do it anyway, but now when I reread it again, I'm going to understand kind of the mentality of you now because there, there's some parts of that book where you're kind of like, there's something more to you. And now I know what that part is. It was like this racing, this kind of other side of you that I'm so glad you're finally kind of putting it out there because it's very fascinating and it's, it's unique and it's badass. So I want to thank you for that. Thanks brother. I want to thank you for uh, one, bringing it up because no one's we've not, like I said, I've never talked about it in a public forum in any depth whatsoever. And it really is part of the base that led to what I do at work and what I did with Matt and, and all of that. Um, and, you know, on the Met team are a bunch of recreational, hardcore, dirt bike, ATV, side-by-side -side riders, too. It just it runs in those law enforcement circles. And um, people seem to want to know more about this side of the story. And as it relates to everything from adversity, adventure, exhilaration, mental health, uh, endurance, uh, mindset. So thanks for putting it out there. And um, we're, we're going to be doing more with it now because I got to I got to admit, this is something I didn't see coming. And uh, I'm no, real blessed to share it with you, man. Thank no, you. No, it's awesome. I want to thank you and I will talk to you soon. All right. Stay safe, John. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's take this outside. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. It is your favorite girl. That's right, it's the Ali Mars. The one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate.